I mean, you know a song's a piece of trash when you kick it off by crashing a car into a dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, and general complainers dig deep into the backgrounds and stories behind some of history's most influential albums and bands, as mortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So I'm going to give some history on the band, on the album. We'll do some deep dives on a handful of the tracks. At the end, we'll all vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. As usual, we want to thank you for spending some time with us today, and I wanted to open up this episode with a with a good decision, bad decision comparison for our artists today. So first off, for our good decision, none other than Rick Rubin had suggested that this week's band rename themselves the Cobb County Crows, spelled with all K's. You know, KKK. Thankfully, the band refused that bit of insanity. Overall, a good decision. However, insanity was never too far away, so for our bad decision, the lead guitarist of today's band once took their tour bus and left the entire band stranded in New Orleans so that he could drive home early to Atlanta. Man, if that ain't some rock star shit right there, I don't know what is. So if you haven't guessed it yet, today we're talking about the Black Crows. My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years, played professionally for over a decade, and today I'm going to be leading us through the debut album from the Black Crows. So this album is called Shake Your Money Maker, a reference to an old Elmore James song that never actually made it onto the record. But what did make it onto the record was possibly the most potent cure, or remedy, for for all the boy bands and hair metal that was dominant at the time. The Black Crows unleashed a rock and roll revival a little over 30 years ago that inspired a lot of kids, including a young me. So now that I've thrown any semblance of objectivity out the window, let's dive right into the opening track off this album. This is called Twice As Hard. Okay, once again, track one, side one, debut album. We love these tracks. So let's work our way around the studio today with our quick intros and those beloved tweet length reviews. Let's throw it over to Alan. Thank you. (laughs) Damn it. What do you got? Uh, So this is Alan here. And uh, my tweet length review is, if you like reconstituted rock music that flagrantly imitates an iconic UK band from the 60s, <laughs> delivered by two brothers who hate each other's guts, then I think Oasis might be your kind of band. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. All right, Phil, what do you got for us today? Yeah, so I want to say that it was twice as hard to listen to this record this time <laughs> around as it was 25 years ago, but I can't honestly say that. It goes down pretty easy, you know, like... Georgia bourbon. 
That's, that's pretty, Southern comfort. Pretty good. Yeah, not, not too bad. Good. All right, all right. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a famous Miller Lite story, too, that maybe we'll get oh, into. Oh, yeah. Speaking of going down, easy. Rob, what do you got for us? Guys, is this what it feels like to just relax and appreciate Leonard Skinnerd? <laughs> That's what I was wondering all week. No, no. Seriously, listening to the album Shake Your Money Maker was a ton of fun. Uh, don't get me wrong, but are these guys really breaking new ground? Are they actually to blame for a million other Starbucks-friendly Americana throwback acts? Are they 100% necessary to hear? I'm looking forward to getting into it. TBD, all right. I feel like if Rob has to ask those questions, then we kind of know the answers. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little worried, Rob. I, I, I see which way this is going already from the top. All right, this is Adam. So, loud guitars, check. Solid drummer, check. Amazing keyboard player, check. Virtually unintelligible and power-hungry, cocaine-crazed lead singer? Check. <laughs> so overall, the story of the Black Crows is a story of an omnipresent sibling rivalry, narcissism, control, potential bipolar disorder, and loads of drugs. So quintessential American rock and roll. Now, I, I said there at the top that I've always loved this band, but I didn't really think of this band as a group. So I read a book this week by Steve Gorman. It was called Hard to Handle the Life and Death of the Black Crows. And he had made that comparison of the difference between a band and a group. And in my head, I think of Iron Maiden as a group, right? When you go on, on Wikipedia and you look at their Gantt chart, their timeline, there's like 60 members of the band over 40 years. The Black Crows are kind of the same. It's like Disney on ice. <laughs> exactly. They've got 17 members of the band that have filtered in and out between 1990 and 2008. Well, hold on. To be fair, that is most groups that, that last longer than 20 years, right? I mean, the Temptations are still out there touring, but... With, <laughs> with the exception, what was it? Uh, wasn't U2 and Weird Al's band? They, I think they had been, they like, it's the same lineup for 35 years or something. Yeah, U2 is the same four terrible musicians for like <laughs> over 40 years. <laughs> So in that book that, that was written by the drummer, he definitely gives a, a good glimpse of how problems that he saw that started in 1987 basically stuck around for 25 years and ultimately killed the band. I think now, whatever it is, 32 years later, they're actually still touring. I think it's just the two brothers and, and they have a bunch of fill-in players. I'm sure they still rock. But 1987 is a great place to start, and that's because that's when a 22-year-old Steve Gorman, the drummer, dropped out of college and became the drummer of an Atlanta-based band called Marry My Hope. So the guys in Marry My Hope were also friends with another Atlanta-based rock band called Mr. Crow's Garden. In fact, it was Chris Robinson who met Steve Gorman at the bus station when he came down to Atlanta at 22 years old. So Chris Robinson and his younger brother, Rich Robinson, grew up in a suburb outside of Atlanta, and they formed Mr. Crow's Garden when they were still in high school, I think in 1984. So it's 1987, Rich the guitarist is 18, and Chris, his brother, the singer, and the guy who writes all the lyrics is 21 years old. I, can I say that the first thing that surprised me, so let me just jump, let me just say a little bit where I'm coming from. I didn't listen to this at all when it came out. I couldn't have cared less. And in fact, probably because of the you know, Adam just indicated his history with this record, but I've always associated this band with you guys, with Adam, Phil, and Tom, and your high school band. <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely right, think right. of mm. I think of this as Adam's band for sure. Big time. Oh man, yeah, you got me to a T. 
But I, one thing that that surprised me was that this came out in 1990. I mean, that was much earlier than I was expecting. Because, of course, I remember hearing the singles and watching the sure. videos. But I thought of them as a mid-90s band, not an early 90s band. Yeah, I did as well. And I was sort of surprised to hear that. And seeing that helped me situate this a little bit more with sort of the Guns N' Roses, you know, Appetite era. And there being, you know, kind of in some senses, like the only game in town where there wasn't a ton of decent rock music happening. So I, I guess they filled a void, but. Well, yeah, they kind of, they kind of sound like fresh Rolling Stones. Like in that way, they're a way better Rolling Stones than like Greta Von Fleet is Led Zeppelin. Dude, don't, don't taint this with that horrendous (laughs) band. God, you look at that guy dresses in, well, whatever. Next week we'll be reviewing Greta they're, Van Fleet. They're playing the basketball stadium in in my town in a couple weeks. Of course so they are, yeah, dude. Yeah. The king, the kings deserve Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> so they're doing okay for themselves, man. Yeah. All right, so Steve Gorman, the drummer, he comes down. He's playing with this group, Mary My Hope, but he eventually joins Mr. Crow's Garden. So early on. Like I mentioned, Steve started to see the dysfunction between the brothers, Chris and Rich Robinson. And he tells a story that after an absolutely amazing gig, Chris, the older brother, was just simply unable to experience joy. And that is something that that plagued them for their entire career, bordering on, on manic depressive behavior. And that was definitely something that, I mean, caused a lot of other band members to leave, but also that constant battling between the brothers. I mean, it's a pretty prolific career. They, they wrote a lot of good music, and it was mainly written by Chris and Rich Robinson. Well, maybe we're going to get deeper into it, but since this is one of those bands that is somewhat defined by the sibling rivalry and on-again, off-again nature of their band because they're fighting and they or you know they're on different tour buses and they won't talk to each other or their friends again can we get a little bit into people who haven't been in a band might not realize how full of conflict and tension it is you don't have to be brothers i mean i was in a band with phil and we fought constantly sure. it's it's really hard to spend hours a week locked in windowless rooms with people just like it's just hard. <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah. You're not you're not playing cards. Well, and it's work. It's it's. I feel like imagine being coworkers with like some of your best friends. Imagine you know? being coworkers, but it's not just that. You yes, it's work in the sense that you're trying to accomplish a goal, and yet there is no pay. The only right. payoff, if there is even a payoff, is just the glory of accomplishing finishing the song or finishing the record. That in all probability, no one but your friends is ever going to hear. And so, and at the same time, to make music, to make art of any sort, you have to be, make yourself very vulnerable. You're writing presumably personal material, or at the very least, you're putting your, you're playing out there to be judged by others. So it's like you're already in a vulnerable position. It's, I'm just saying that, and it wasn't just Phil and I, you know, I was, we were in the same band with Tom, fought with Tom all the time. Yeah. In the same band with James, fought with James all the time. It's constant. We always, I always likened it at the time. It's kind of part of the fun. It's kind of part of the fun. <laughs> I like, yeah, Alan and Phil are in a band currently, right? And I'm sure they fight. It's a little bit like a marriage, but there's five people involved, which means you not only have to keep in mind, you know, it's the complexity of not just one relationship, not just five relationships, if you're in a five-person band, but also all the interrelationships that you have to manage like before anything can happen. And on top of all that, there's there's no sex to cut the tension or makeup or anything <laughs> like that. 
Well, and that's before the drugs take hold. <laughs> but a lot of the times, Rob, like you said, like these guys, they're doing all that and they don't even get to go home to like different spots. Like they're all living in the same one bedroom apartment with like mattresses on the floor and there's rats everywhere. So imagine sure. all that and like you can't even find a clean shower. I- I'm just bringing it up as context because I think it is easy to poke fun at brothers who can't get along or Oasis who was already referenced here or who can't get back together and make millions and millions of dollars or whatever. And they deserve to be poked fun at. Don't get me wrong. But although I I do respect leaving that much money on the table in the name of spite. Like I I truly (laughs) have respect for that. It's like I hear the ghost of Tom on this conversation. (laughs) It's like I will see to it that my children and his children's children have nothing. I'm just saying it's a normal part of the deal of being in a band. And we have to acknowledge that that when you're trying really hard to accomplish something, all those other attributes we mentioned, fighting is just a natural part of it. I have a friend who did pretty well touring with some pop acts around the world. I mean, playing stadiums and stuff. And he said at that level, again, not like the homegrown band thing, but when you're playing with those type of pop acts that you get to a certain level and everyone can play. It comes down to who do you want to spend 15 hours a day on a bus with? So it's like, you know, yeah, I get it. You can play, but are you an asshole? No. All right. You're in the band. Join us. Right. Who am I going to have fun with? And well, and it's that transition. Yeah. You referenced the difference between a homegrown band that feel like they're all in it together, like a team, which is one of the coolest parts about being in a band, right? Even an unsuccessful band is you really feel like you're a part of a brotherhood or whatever. Versus a hired gun where every, the hierarchy in that, let's say company is very well known. You're here to do a job and go home right, and that's right. it. That's your contribution. You don't decide if our music's going into Pepsi commercial or whatever, and you have your salary and that's it. That's the totally different scenario, right? Now that actually, that's funny though, because one of the things that that Steve Gorman later in the career even just, I think, you know, five to 10 years ago, they wanted to go back out on tour. And Chris Robinson basically told Steve Gorman, you're going to be salaried. I'll tell you how much you get per gig and that's it. Versus this like, hey, we built this thing together 30 years ago, the three of us. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons that, that ultimately drove him out of the band. Well, that maybe last thought on this particular topic is that I heard, I read a Tom Petty biography that I really enjoyed some years back. And one of the things they attributed to the Heartbreakers playing together as a band for an extended period of time is that when Tom Petty got the record contract, they came for him, for Tom Petty. And he said, well, I want to bring my band. But then he had that difficult conversation early, before stardom, before hits, and said, here's how it's going to work. I'm the guy. You're the band. I love you guys. So there were no delusions. Yeah, right. But that's how it's going to work. And then it worked that way for, you know... 30 years. So these guys have a great, how did they get discovered story? So they had a manager when they were still playing small clubs, driving all their own gear around. They, they had a manager named Dave Macias who helped them with bookings, getting equipment to him from the gigs, borrowing cars and all that stuff. So he used to work in the mailroom in the Atlanta branch of AM records. So Dave Macias, he sends their demo using AM letterhead to the LA office hoping that someone would see the letterhead and think, oh, this must be like some talent rep from Atlanta. So they open it up, they listen to it, and it actually worked. And A&M gave the band some money for a professional demo. Just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Just need letterhead. Back in the day, you just need letterhead, man. That's all you need. (laughs) What a hustle. It's creative. (laughs) It's very creative. Didn't Phil send 
like a parking ticket or something yes. from the city of Newark to somebody. To, yeah, I sent a parking ticket to Marty, an unpaid parking <laughs> ticket to Marty yeah, about yeah. like, you know, bench warrant and stuff. It was hilarious. <laughs> really got him. It was great. What well, you could do with Photoshop back in 1999. I will, I will admit though. The price I pay for it, it's almost like a murder. Like I, I got him so good that like every time I see Marty, there's always that little like what's what's right around the corner. <laughs> got him on edge. I, you know, I feel like uh Marty, I can name a lot of similar stories that all involve Marty. So that's that's his wheelhouse, I think. Sure. It reminds me a little. Sorry, it's already very tangential, but that creativity of how to get your foot in the door reminds me a little of the story of that comedy duo, Tim and Eric, and how supposedly they got Bob Odenkirk to watch their VHS demo because when they sent it in, they attached an invoice to the outside and the proposed to be billing him for having sent the demo. And Bob (laughs) Odenkirk liked that so much that he watched it. That's awesome. All right, so they they get this demo, and it's the spring of 1988. They score a gig in New York City, which was 16 hours away from Atlanta. So they drive there, and a guy named George Draculius introduced himself after the gig. Now, George had been Rick Rubin's roommate and partner at Def Jam when Rubin was still running it out of his his college dorm room. Now, you may also know the name George Draculius from the Beastie Boys song, B-Boy Bouillabaisse, wherein they proceed to rhyme his last name Draculius with Orange Julius. (laughs) it's his big claim to fame classic so draculius basically tells him like you guys suck like there's something (laughs) here but you need you need a lot of work and it kind of like kind of sent a spark through them. He winds up, Draculius winds up joining Deaf American, which became the rock arm of Def Jam Records. So George Draculius did ultimately really shape the sound of this album and the band. He started introducing them to you know, the, the open G tunings. He turned Rich Robinson, the guitar player, on to Nick Drake. They just started listening to a real eclectic mix of stuff. Alan, you had mentioned Guns N' Roses, Chris Robinson was also listening to to that GNR record and was insistent like they needed to be harder. And I think you hear a lot of that on this album too. I mean, there are some loud guitars on this. They're not so crunchy that it's metal, but there are some heavy guitar tones on this album. Yeah, there were definitely a few points where it felt like the the dueling guitars and and that just screaming Les Paul. I don't even know if that's what he played, but that that definitely comes through. Sure. You're in you're in big time blasted Rolling Stones, maybe even like Aerosmith territory. Right. Yeah. And the, right. and right. The open tunings are a huge thing for Keith. Yeah, the open tunings are cool. Yeah. The open tunings are really cool. I never noticed it. Yeah. Yeah. The open tunings. It's funny that I never realized as a kid, as like a 14 year old, why I couldn't make these songs, make it when I played on guitar, why didn't it sound like the album? You know, like you, you listen to it and you figure out all the notes and it just didn't sound the same. And it's all about those open tunings. That it was like you were never going to get to those notes. They were never going to be available. Right, exactly. And I was like, "What am I doing wrong? Maybe it's the guitar. Is it the amp? No, it's it's open tuning, which I didn't discover till you know it's like eighteen or something, which is pretty sad." All right, so it's nineteen eighty nine. The band is in pre production. They've got most of the songs written. They've been rehearsing these, so they go into the studio. They lay down 
all of the tracks after three weeks of doing the music. Then they head out to LA and Chris Robinson does most of the vocal tracks. And there was a note from the drummer that said, Chris didn't realize the level of commitment needed to doing vocals in the studio, which makes sense because if I'm honest, he's not that good of a singer live especially like i feel like there are a lot of notes on this album that this was the first and last time he ever hit those notes was for the shake your money maker vocal session i don't know if it was the drugs the alcohol touring too much but i've seen i've seen him live a couple times and i've watched a ton of their live videos and he just doesn't hit the notes sometimes he'll drop out for half a verse because there's a high note coming and he just like lets the backup singer sing it and this is like when he was like 25, he was doing this. So there's some challenging notes in here. There's no doubt about yeah. that, right? If you know your range and you're in the studio and you're like, okay, I'm writing these songs and I'm at the absolute maximum that I can pull off and you know that you're going to be touring, just drop everything down a whole step. You know, well, like that well, would be I think so- <laughs> There's a difference between being able to hit something in your range, but also doing it consistently and repeatedly right, in a studio right. setting. Especially once you introduce, you know, if you're drinking at all, which I have no reason to think these guys were not in the studio. They were drinking hard. All that shit's going (laughs) to add up. And if these are all open tunings, I wonder if sort of going up or down a key is maybe not as easy. Uh, Vocally, I think you'd have to adjust, but I don't know. That's a good point. If if you start, you know, doing all open tunings and dropping stuff, you're going to turn into like, you know, the Deftones, like sludge metal style. (laughs) (laughs) It all of it requires a certain level of self knowledge and preparation, though. I, that's what I've personally learned. Is you're right, discovering your own range and then writing songs in your range, or kind of bailing and downgrading in key and arrangement when necessary. Any of that kind of stuff. I, I just wonder if young kids. I know that I certainly had no clue about this until like the last five years. So it takes time. It takes guidance uh, from maybe even a producer. To, to get to that. But I, I'll tell you, I just funny we're talking about his voice being being not so good because I came away from the record thinking, man, this is the greatest asset in the band. Oh, he sounds great. There's once or twice even on the album doesn't get to the note and it gives it some charm, right? I made a few notes of some places that we'll, you will get into where it's, it's obvious yeah. he, he just can't get there. But I do think he's got a very unique range. Like that high range is not accessible to everybody. It's just a matter of what kind of control do you have over it and how consistent are you with getting into that range? I, I do agree that 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 is a little bit of a of a, like an X factor for this band. Well, you know, compare him to a guy like John Fogarty, who we talked about how they're both kind of whiskey drenched, push it hard rock and roll vocalists. But I can kind of sense that this guy has a lot less control than a guy like John Fogarty. I mean, Fogarty was a pro, though. Like, he was he was dialed. And also hated by his brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Brotherly hatred makes for good rock and roll. All right, so it's late 19... We're now in 1989. They scheduled the release of the album in 1990, and they've done zero promotional planning, no interviews, so they, they realize they need a manager and a promoter, so they, got, they get a guy named Pete Angelis who winds up working with them for the rest of their career, and he manages to cram in like six months of, of promotions and radio stuff uh, all, in, all in a couple of weeks. One of my favorite stories was that this promoter, Pete Angelis, before taking them on, wanted to see them live. So they grabbed a club in Atlanta on a Sunday night no entry, first beer free. 
<laughs> and uh, there were 12 people in the room, including the drummer's mother. <laughs> and the promoter comes out to see them and is like, what the hell am I getting myself into? So I, I appreciated playing to 12 people and trying to really sell it because that was most of my musical but the, career. But the record uh, is tracked at this point? Or this is before? The record is tracked, yeah. The, the record is tra- It's done at this point. Wait, where was the 12-person show? It was in Atlanta, which is surprising as well because that was their kind of their home court. Yeah, it feels like they would have built up. This sounds like a like a bar band that's played a lot of bars successfully to me. Right. I feel like I <laughs> I came away with this feeling, especially with some of these earlier tracks on the album, that like I, I can envision seeing this band playing behind Chicken Wire at some like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. roadhouse bar. <laughs> probably my favorite tracks that we're gonna get to. <laughs> So the 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 record sold pretty well. So the first it took 11 months to sell the first million copies. The second million copies sold in month 12 and then the third million copies sold in month 13. So it it, it was a slow burn for that first year and then then they took off. All right, so let's quickly talk about personnel on this album. So you've got Jeff Cease on lead guitar and this is something I I wanted to ask Phil. When you're Rich Robinson and you're writing all of these songs in open tunings, that's hard to solo with, right? I, I would imagine so, right? Like, especially, yeah, I would imagine so. Like, yeah, I'm sure you could write solos, but uh, for me personally, it would be very difficult to improvise, right? Because that's based on a certain understanding of the Of, of the, the neck. neck. Yeah. Yeah, and so if you if you were to picture a piano and you take the A note, and you move it to a black key like C sharp. Well, hold on, hold on a second. You're suggesting that even in the studio, he would have to take the same guitar that's tuned to an open key. No, no, solo? no. I'd, it was more around why did they need a lead guitar player if Rich uh, Robinson is the guitar I player? See. So I'm thinking like, yeah, live to get these sounds, you need to be open tuned, but it's got to be hard to ju- mm-hmm. like you just can't do a pentatonic. You have to reteach yourself. Well, there's a lot of slide too, right? And I imagine that's all Robinson. That. Yeah, that's where I feel like soloing would work over an open chord mm-hmm. is slide guitar, the, right? But like, also, I feel like the, the soloing is extremely pentatonic, right? Sure, yeah, so, he's not, you know, doing anything crazy, but still. It's definitely a challenge, but if you're kind of living in that open tuning for a minute, then you just learn your pentatonic patterns in that tuning. It's not that crazy. Yeah, I, I was underwhelmed by the solos. I, I actually, I, I will say, I think the guitar work as a whole was was decent. But I think when it came to the solos, the, I, I didn't think it was doing much for me. So I don't know if they were just limited by the open tuning or if there's just not. Well, well, being the fact that I did think of Guns N' Roses a few times, even before we brought them up here on this in this conversation, that was not a nice comparison for them guitar wise, because the guitar stands out <laughs> so much on Appetite for Destruction. All right, and then on bass, you've got a guy named Johnny Cold. By the way, the, the guitar player and the bass player, the lead guitar player and the bass player both left, I think, within six months of them releasing the album. Steve Gorman, I mentioned, on drums. Chuck Lavelle on keys, who had toured with the Grateful Dead, a very well-known keyboard player who I think actually elevates a lot of these songs from mediocre to outstanding. I agree. Some of these tunes are just two chords. Yeah, I agree. ADD. In fact, I was wanting him in more of the songs and turned up farther. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He played with the Allman Brothers, didn't he? Or has yes. some connection to that? Yeah. I, I did think his presence was like, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it goes far as like, you know, the Billy Preston thing, but like, I think it added 
something that the band really needed in a lot of these instances. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a solid addition. There's a woman named Laura Creamer who's doing some of the backups that you'll hear on the album. A guy named Brendan O'Brien is the engineer. They, they list him as doing some other random stuff. Brendan O'Brien. He's on everything, man. Is that the same guy? That's what I'm From looking the, up the now. Chili Peppers uh, engineer guy. Is that the, that the dude you're talking about? Brendan O'Brien's got to be a fairly common Irish name. <laughs> I reckon. Just like George Draculius. Uh, and my favorite part was that Rick Rubin was listed as the executive producer, but only after the album became a hit. <laughs> so there are, ver- <laughs> there are versions of this album where he's not on it. And then I think once they hit like the 2 million mark, he started to put his name on it. Yeah, there. it looks like it is the Brendan O'Brien who also worked on Super Unknown and Vitology and Purple. Matthew Sweets, 100% fun. Adam, are you, are you going to bring up... Is this or is this apocryphal that the Robinson's dad also had a hit song like in the in the sixties? In the sixties, like a little doo wop song, I think. I didn't actually go look it up, but yes, he did have a, a minor hit. It's and called I, Boom a Dip Dip. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something about the way Rob pronounces those ridiculous words. Is is that on Spotify? It is. You got to put dashes in between, and it, and the artist is Stan Robinson, but we'll put that on the playlist. Oh, yeah. Boom a dip dip. All right. Checking that out. Right? You might need a cleanser. You might need a palate cleanser after the the album tonight. So. Doesn't sound like the Black Crows, certainly. All right, so gents, let's jump into some tunes now. You'll notice that I have specifically omitted She Talks to Angels and Hard to Handle. Those songs have been (laughs) covered by a million other things. They've been played a hundred million times. I think you specifically might have talked them to death. (laughs) But okay. (laughs) I I just want to put it out there as far as the, the whole hard to handle thing. I do think She Talks to Angels, great song. I think that's a great song, but hard to handle is decent, but I have always had a problem with bands or groups that are introduced to the world through a cover song that is not that dissimilar from the original. I just want to put that out there as all it's, it's, it's a petty grievance. I don't think they were expecting to, for it to do that well. I know they released it as a single, but George Draculius convinced none, nobody wanted to do it because they're like, why? How are we going to touch an Otis Redding tune? Because these guys all loved that music, right? Yeah. He's also from Atlanta, like them. Right, exactly. So, how are you going to do this? And he convinced them to do it because they would need singles like in other countries on like the, the Japan release and the Germany release. And they dropped it as a single in the US and it took off. That was. That was certainly how I was introduced to him, but it wasn't the first single. I don't even know if it was the second single, maybe. Adam yeah, knows. the first single was Jealous Again. Right. So, but that's that video on MTV is definitely where I heard about them. And so I, I somewhat, I didn't like it at the time. I like it a little more now, but I hear what, what Alan's saying. But I think their rationale was also that it was only a B side for Otis. It wasn't like a major hit. Right. So they felt a little more confident with it. It wasn't Dock of the Bay, right? Right. Right, because there would be no point in covering that song. Attention bands, there is no point in you covering Doc of the Bed. That's a good public service announcement. I like that. All right, let's jump back into the track we played at the top there. This song is called Twice as Hard. I said goodbye, and no one 
So Adam, you alluded to it when you played a clip earlier, but as a side one, track one, album one, this was a really pleasant surprise for me. It is my favorite track on the record. It's I had heard it before, I realized, but I had never really actively listened to it. I'd never put this record on actively. So I'm sure I've heard this song in some bar somewhere. You know, it was kind of familiar. But I really think this is them. This is their aesthetic in peak form, in my opinion. They leave a lot of... The, the, the song itself is quite simple in terms of its chords, but they leave a lot of room for it to breathe in the arrangement. You know, there's a lot of like dropouts and drum things and guitar kind of strumming a chord and holding. So I was just, I was like really jazzed for the record after hearing this as the first track. Yeah, it's a really well-arranged Southern rock song. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was the best song on the album as well. It had a little bit, and this is, I'm going to repeat myself a few times with some other songs. There's something that felt a little ACDC-ish about like maybe it was the intro of the song or something. But yeah, I feel like like out of the gate, great album opener, great sort of mission statement type of 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 track. Yeah, it rocks. It does rock. I I also I love the guitar layering in this song. Uh again, mm-hmm. like you're saying out of the gate of what you're going to hear in the rest of the album. I thought the the panning of the guitars and and the way that they were stacking them was really Yeah, really totally. Cool. And you get the you get the the open chord immediately, right? Yeah, Which like right. you wouldn't immediately identify as like, "Oh man, what's happening here?" right? But it does set a tone that you're going to get these two guitars and they're going to feel different in a way that you're accustomed to but not accustomed to. But just just for clarity for the audience and and for me, are you saying that the two guitars that one is an open tuning and the other one's not? And so even though they might, might be playing the same G chord or whatever, that they sound much more distinct than yeah, two, two guitars I, tuned to standard tuning? That That's what I'm suggesting for sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think one of them is actually using a slide. As they as they move through the chords as well, so that's all. I think that's also an open tuning as well. So it's it, it's a cool cool effect out of the gate. Yeah, I, I that's I didn't take particular notice of that, but that is a good point because I do think that one of the one of the challenges of being in a band with multiple guitars, or I imagine multiple any instruments, but guitars the most common, is how they don't run into each other. And I do hear a lot of amateurish bands screw it up. You know, so yeah. finding that area of distinction is is a little bit more nuanced and, and challenging than than one might think. Now, I am talking to someone who is guitar player one of three in their band right now. So. Yes, yes, and that and that's absolutely true. Yes, it is. Uh, it's ongoing work to understand like where you fit on any given song. Who's hard in the rhythm section, or maybe you just like can't play with a certain pickup on this song. Yeah, they're just trying to find a space. And then once you get there, you sort of want to, it's yours, right? You don't want mm, anybody. That's your spot. That's your, you've identified your frequency band yeah, for the night. Yeah. Like, all right, I'm going to stay in here. And then when you can't find a spot, you just come for the bass part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just double the bass line. That works. All right. Uh, we're going to move on to a Jealous Again, which I think was actually the first single off of this album that was released.
I feel like I, if you turn this up really loud, just on the way that it was mic'd in the room, I feel like you can hear the snare rumbling, kind of like rattling in the background if you crank this as the opening guitar riff is going. And apparently Rich, what's the point in saying that a guitar player was known for playing really loud? That's kind of like saying like, oh, well, you know, like we're all breathing air right now. So it's kind of a stupid thing that I was going to say, so I'm not going to say it. Well, I, I always like to think about the mix dynamics and the power struggle. So I didn't know, I knew this band had two brothers in it, but I listened to this. I First note was piano sounds great. Wish it was turned up higher. Second thought was guitars turned up too high in relation to that. I bet the other brother is the guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I this I think this is a, is a pretty good song. It's it's this apes the stones thing a little bit sure. much for my liking. And, and that's a little hard to shake as I'm listening to it. I think maybe they hit the chorus one too many times or something because it does feel like they hit you over the head with the with the chorus a little bit. I think it's a, it's, it's a pretty solid song. You're bringing up a good kind of general complaint I had, which is the songs do kind of go on a little too long for what they are sometimes. And I had, even though the whole record I think is under 45 minutes, so pretty tight, it's, I still kind of had the feeling that I had been through quite a lot after getting through it. And I think it's just because <laughs> of the arrangement choices. They could have tightened these up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? If I was Rick Rubin or Draculius in the room, my suggestion would have been to cut 30 seconds out of five of the songs and maybe add one more song, something like that. I do have a little bit of a beef with this song and it's not actually a problem with the song, but it maybe speaks more to what Rob mentioned earlier about this sort of being a gateway or sort of like later garbage in the the late nineties and early two thousands, something about this song. And I don't know what it is. It just like, it really gives me major uh, Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet vibes. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Now, again, like not Black Crow's fault that Jet exists, but that is a problem. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe well, it is their fault. <laughs> yeah, it might be kind of their fault. We, we, can, we can do some root cause analysis here. Okay. So <laughs> this, <laughs> this is what I'm trying to untangle here because... I think I kind of said it at the top, but let me be even more clear. I enjoyed the record. It was a, I had l- relatively low expectations and I had a fun time listening to it. It's a fun record. Certainly not sorry I listened to it. These are, there are a lot of these rock and roll songs are fun. We're nitpicking, whatever. And it sounds like contextually they were coming at a time when this was not a common thing to be sounding like this kind of Americana revival. Yeah, they sound like other bands from previous decades, but so what? So does every band. So now Americana Revival is its own genre that has been blown out, I would say. Um, It's fucked out. I'm tired of it. I'm over (laughs) it. You hear it. They literally sell these CDs in Starbucks sometimes, you know? And But that's not the Black Crow's fault. So I'm trying to figure out, though, if being a revival band or being a retro band, even at a time when it's not popular, is significant enough to be a must listen. That's that's my question, right? It's not like is the music good. I enjoyed the music. Right. As I was listening to this again and and being a, a child of the 90s and MTV as we all are, we're all very familiar with the band and the hits, but I really hadn't listened to this front to back. I don't think ever. I did get the feeling of like rocking the grill out back, you know, during during some hot summer day and had some people over and we're drinking some beers like and someone had this on in the background. I'd be like this is very fitting for this environment. Like it's, it's definitely like a laid back, you know, I, I would say it's, it's has some fun aspects of it, but I don't think it's breaking any kind of 
ground that and it it doesn't feel to me like it's different enough that it it justifies well you know what? i don't want to uh spoil things too much but i'm with you rob i'm asking the same questions and i'm asking it to adam specifically who seems like he's this record's champion so that's i'm just directing the rest of our conversation because i'm i'm willing to be swayed but i need to hear more on that topic sure sure no i mean i i think you make some good points i i think that yeah, going in the face of, you know, Bon Jovi and a lot of the other hair bands, like these guys felt, and again, not like I was listening to a ton of hair bands at nine years old, but in retrospect, I knew what those bands were. I remember hearing those. Sure. And these guys were, were somewhat of the antidote to uh, hair metal, which Chris Robinson said was boy bands with chlamydia, which I thought was hilarious. But <laughs> that's a that's a good line. Like the overproduction, because I think it was like Warrant. Like when this was released, I think Warrant had an album and they were out of Las Vegas and they they were big and they were lights and they were hair and they were the skin tight leather outfits. They looked like, you know, pro wrestlers and shreddy guitars. And then you have these guys who are, do that Americana thing. They're not shredding guitars. They're doing they're doing simple guitar melodies that are effective. So Hold that's, that's kind of how I'm leading. I, I hear you, but I was listening to hair metal when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, mostly because that's what MTV was playing. And I've said before on this podcast, the first music I ever bought for myself was Dr. Feelgood as a cassette that's tape. That's right. I, I just don't see as big a distinction. I, I agree they're not exactly in the same genre, but they are bands that rock. Like they're carrying some sense of the spirit of rock and roll. And it sounded like your description there of how they're different had a lot more to do with how the people are dressed on stage. So now let me just take a little sidebar to tell you that the Black Crows dress in a ridiculous manner on stage. <laughs> and by the Black Crows, I mean Chris Robinson specifically. Right, exactly. And we need more scarves and more top hats. Yeah, like didn't, I thought Steven Tyler like cornered the market on scarves right. on the microphone. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, so there is, there is an Aerosmith connection. Yeah, sorry. That's a that's a quick fun thing to throw in. So the Aerosmith thing. So we'll break with the song, but their first big tour to promote this album was opening for Aerosmith, and Joe Perry tried to get them fired because I guess he didn't like the way they sounded or they just weren't good enough or whatever. So if you're not good enough for like '91 Aerosmith, geez, well, <laughs> come on, man. Well, it was it's funny too because Steve Gorman was saying that they were crushed when they opened for Aerosmith the first time and they realized that when Aerosmith does this this thing that they always do is in love in an elevator, they all stop playing and they walk up to the microphone and act like they're singing that thing at the end, but it's totally a track and they're it's lip-syncing. just piped in. Like, uh, they, yeah, and they were all crushed because 70s Aerosmith were their heroes. And now they are opening for their heroes. And they're like, oh my God, you guys are faking it. Let's, Which I thought was hilarious. Hold on, let's dissect this Joe Perry tried to get them fired story because- I have a couple other data points that I think are worth considering and speculating about. One is, <laughs> go on. On the Appetite for Destruction episode, we heard about this was during Aerosmith's, they got clean and sober and they were kind of on the way climbing back from obscurity. They had been a big band in the 70s and maybe early 80s. They had gone through a trough of drug addiction and and no hits, or terrible hits, mm-hmm. basically ragdoll looking at you. And dude looks like a lady. <laughs> <laughs> and they were on the way back up, but they were also clean and sober. So when Guns N' Roses was proposed to open for them, I think they played one show or something, and they said, no way, we can't. We can't be around these guys. They're doing too many drugs. Right. We haven't talked about Black Crow's drug use yet, but 
that could have been a factor. Just throwing that out there. And two, I heard several anecdotes about Chris Robinson not getting along with other musicians. He seems like a prickly pear to me. He apparently had this longstanding feud with John Poplar. <laughs> I didn't read that, but that's that's about right. So Chris Robinson had a penchant for running his mouth about other bands, to which their manager, Pete Angelis, was like, why are you doing that? He's like, if you want to sell albums, you can't go shitting on other other people's, the rest of their record collection. Like, they're entitled to like that. You don't have to crap on that. But the light beer thing comes from, they, they ultimately finish the Aerosmith tour and they get on the ZZ Top summer tour. And at this point, ZZ Top is is over the top with big endorsements from, what was it Miller Lite or something? And it's got it's the basic, spinning guitars. Yeah, right. Like it's it's completely commercialized. It's a joke, right? And so they, they get a second gig opening for them. And in some interview, Rich Robinson said something about not liking light beer. Not like not that he didn't like Bud Light or Miller Light, but that he just didn't like light beer. Somebody read this and was like, oh my God, he's shitting on the sponsors. So they try to tell him to stop talking to the press. And then he goes off in this big thing about like free speech. You can't censor me. And ultimately they wanted to get off this tour because they had enough fans that they could start headlining. So they, they basically staged this huge battle with uh, ZZ Top and their and their sponsors and ultimately got kicked off the tour. Was ZZ Top in on it? <laughs> <laughs> ZZ Top just wanted money. <laughs> bass, bass players like, I, I've worked at the airport. I'm, I'm good with what we're <laughs> at here. <laughs> That's right. The ZZ Top guy was the baggage handler. <laughs> Feeling pretty all right about this? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I can think of a period of in my life where I would have gone on a Miller Lite, you know, crusade. <laughs> <laughs> oh hell yeah! I would do that right now. It gave me a half a million bucks to play a couple yeah, chords. Lagrange yeah, like for two hundred times next year, uh, no problem. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely pro ZZ Top in, in that story. But that that but just to be clear, that does suck about Aerosmith using tape effects. But I'll tell you what I would have accepted. I would have accepted guys standing off stage out of the spotlight singing the part instead. That would have been better for me. Yes, they have a <laughs> they have a barbershop quartet <laughs> with their top hats all just around a single microphone. Hit it! Because to me, there is a fine but a very important line a distinction between lip syncing and farming out the parts you can't do anymore. So in other words, if they still gave Steven Tyler a part, but it wasn't the same part he sang on the record and someone kind of off stage, not technically in the band, was singing it, as I believe you told us once Adam was the case when you saw Aerosmith. Yeah, that right, right. That works perfectly fine for me. The times I've seen Steely Dan, I noticed they did that very deftly with Fagan, some of Fagan's vocals. He was still singing, but he just wasn't singing the same note. Someone else was covering that note. That seems like a totally reasonable compromise to me. All right, let's jump back into the tunes. We're going to uh, dive into a song called Thick and Thin. All right, there you have it. Just so you know, that sound effect was not just pulled from some random sound effects album. They actually went to the parking lot of the recording studio with the drummer's 1972 Dodge Dart and crashed it into a dumpster to get that <laughs> oh, sound Oh, it effect. was a dumpster. I actually, the note I made was, is that a car crashing into trash cans at the beginning? 
It was a dumpster. Apparently, they ran hundreds of feet of mic cables, you know, through the rooms, up the stairs, out the windows, and set all the mics up, and then crashed. And who said they weren't professionals? Come on, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, a song's a piece of trash when you kick it off by crashing a car into a dumpster. (laughs) Yeah, I just wrote could be any band, any time, ever. This this sounded to me like a like a you know those jam along tracks that are on YouTube. <laughs> oh man, that are, <laughs> that's rough. You just type in blues jam and C or rockabilly jam and C, you know, and it comes up on YouTube. That's I, I don't know. That's what I felt listening to the song. Yeah, this was easily my least favorite song on the record, but mostly because it just like kind of yeah, it was just so stock. <laughs> this was one of the more unintelligible songs. I'd mentioned that he was unintelligible. I had such a hard time. I mean, I honestly could have just brought up the karaoke thing on Spotify. I didn't, but I still have, you know, this 30 years after the fact, I still have no idea what he's saying 90% of the time on, on most of these songs. I think he hears the clock ticking. Something <laughs> In a Landcroft <laughs> bitching? I don't know. This, this record really does sound great, though. I think this song, what's interesting about this song to me is like the breakdown, sort of like towards the end. It's like it's like one of the few times in the record where I think you can really hear like the the sound of the drums, sort of like breathing for two reasons. One, just you know, it's mixed that way, and two, it's just like the tempo is slow enough when they do the drum breakdown. It just reminds me that the record really is recorded, like produced very nicely. Sounds great. Great job, Brendan O'Brien. Yeah, they definitely have a nice live band feel. It it feels like you just walked in on a very well-miked room and we're totally. watching this band play, you know, and that's a good thing. And the vocals on some of the songs sound like that too. Like some of the vocals sound like he's in a big room, which is cool. All right. So we're going to jump in next to a song called Seeing Things. And this this is the one, not the one, but one of the songs where I really think the keyboards elevate this song to more than just a, an A-B chord pattern. If you were to see this live and they didn't have the Hammond and they didn't have the piano and it was just guitar, just don't play it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, I feel like it'd be real. Now I do think that Chris does a great job on this song. There are a couple times where I, he's stretching, yeah. but it's got a good feel. And I, I feel like he's pouring himself out in the studio, like as hard as he could. So while he's not, you know, a four forty perfect tuning, I feel like it, it, it hits pretty hard. Yeah, I agree. A complaint first and then a compliment. I had this marked on my first listen as uh, Wednesday's Gone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I actually had this as uh, the Joe Cocker version of With a Little Help from My Friends. Did anyone else pick up on that? I don't know. I didn't, but now I can can hear it now that you say that. But but yeah, I I also timestamped 
is particularly kind of near the end. Oh, the song's too long. That that would be my real complaint about it. But I think it's about 354. He hits some real high notes, mm-hmm. maybe, and then then and over the next 30 seconds where he squeaks it out a little. But I actually like it. Yeah, I, I can respect going for it a little bit. I, I do think this was one of the times, probably around the four-minute mark-ish, where it's clear that he's out of his range. But I'm in favor of not going for like the perfectionist thing all the time, especially for a band like this. Yeah, and and I know there were maybe a couple other times... The fe- just the mixing of the female backups with Chris's voice just felt like a nice change from getting kind of battered by his 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 timbre is pretty similar song to song. And so I just my ear just got a little beaten up by that over the 45 minutes. I also think the the backups here like they they and and maybe even in a strange way, the Leslie, right? Like they sympathize for him maybe not getting to some of the notes in a way that like, again, it works with the arrangement. You're getting everything you need. And again, he's going for it. And that's sort of like you get the the, the energy of that. It's a really interesting point. I, th- I think that is a, a trick of how that type of arrangement is used. When you have really strong backing vocals, like these female backing vocals in this chorus, and then you have a, the lead singer kind of reaching for it. I always, in my ear, and I didn't even realize, I just was subconsciously thinking this, it feels like the backing vocals are like pulling him up a ledge or something. You know what ah, I mean? Right, right. Because yeah. they're so solid. Yeah, I, I I, did think one of the things I did like about the song, and I didn't think it was great. I thought it was a little filler-ish, but it did have a bit of feeling for me. But I I heard in this song a little bit of this like new country wave of guys like Chris Stapleton and you know some of those other folks where they're not borrowing from the Black Crows, but I, I do think this sound seems to be like really a little bit more in vogue right now. There's something more authentic here. Yeah. It's like the muscle shoals sound. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it's like, it's a little bit of a, an enduring, you know, type of sound to the song. I thought this song built really well out of all the songs on the album building to a crescendo. Cause I, I don't think the first chorus comes in until two twenty. but even as it's approaching, you know, something is coming that the song is slow and it, it drags a certain amount, but it, it allows it to build up this tension that when they come in with that chorus, it's like, oh, thank God, that's what we've been waiting for. And they only hit the chorus twice. And granted, I know the outro is a bit long, but I actually enjoy the vamp. It's 518 long, and I feel like the last minute and a half is just them vamping on seeing things. But I feel like it's at such a fevered pitch that it works to carry you out of the song. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I would have liked it to carry me out of the album. I, I mean, I, I think it feels like a last ah, track. Okay. It feels like a good closer for the night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, Based on the arrangement and the writing in this song, the longer runtime is kind of justified. But the fact that it was just smack dab in the middle of the record seemed a little odd to me. 
Well, especially when you see what they closed the album with, which we'll we'll get to. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. All right, so let's move on. Uh, this next tune is called Struttin' Blues. This is actually my favorite song on the album. Uh-oh, really? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. This, this rocks hard, and it's got a couple different sections that I think keep it moving. There's like a halftime thing that they do. Uh-huh. There's a little mini organ solo and the turnaround. So Adam, let's let's we can have our Black Crows little like moment here now, right? Because like okay. I've made some notes yeah. on this too that I think in a lot of ways this is like the most Black Crows song on the record. This sounds like a Morica, right? So this sounds like something yeah, that's going to come right. later. And in that way, yep. I feel like this is actually what the Robinson Brothers songwriting sounds like. The other stuff is maybe a little more heavily influenced by like you know just trying to be popular right but i think this mm-hmm. this i think it has like it has a different excitement because it's like you can tell this is a new sound for them see this didn't bounce off me that way at all it's so funny to hear what you're saying i thought i my brain kind of tuned out with that opening guitar figure which kind of yeah. runs through the song i was just like boring oh yeah where it sounds like jet yeah yeah we're right back into jet yeah it's to, uh, the, it, it starts very boring yeah the good stuff's in the middle <laughs> I maybe I'm listening to something different. I don't know, Rob. I'm with you. I wrote down that this might possibly be the one of the most unremarkable songs that we've done on this podcast. <laughs> oh and, and man, I'm not saying it's one of the worst. I, I just, I just, I, I felt like nothing listening to this. Like it, it, there, it inspired no feelings of anything inside of me. And so, I don't know. That was just my. It felt like very like basic bar rock to me. Anyway, there's like a. There's a breakdown that comes to at like two two minutes, like two fifteen, that I that I feel like is is pretty awesome. Uh. Yeah, yeah, they they do that thing where they they modulate it a whole step. And then they they groove on like the pre-chorus for a little while. And then they do that Guns N' Roses thing where they take the guitar solo up. So the song's in G, the guitar solo is played in C sharp, and then they come back to G, which resolves really nicely. I mean, I'll give it another <laughs> shot, I guess, but it it washed off me like rain. And it's you mentioned their later record, Amorica. So I just took a quick glance through their next two records. I'm not at all familiar with them other than whatever radio hits there might be. But I kind of immediately noticed that Amorica sounded a little more 
just a little more distinguished and a little less purely retro. So maybe that's what you're trying to say. Obviously, I'm speaking from an uneducated opinion on Amorica, having only listened to like half of it once. But it struck me that I might appreciate that record a little more. Well, they did evolve a little bit, didn't they, into... I'm not that familiar with it, but I've seen them described as evolving almost into like jam band ish sort of government mule type of territory, whether you like that or not. I mean, it's definitely different than what's on this album. Apparently Chris, Chris Robinson went through a grateful dead phase. Interesting. (laughs) Again, in in the book, Steve Gorman's book was like, that was the worst time because you had a bunch (laughs) of stoners and grateful dead fans who were so lackadaisical that they wouldn't even clap. And then you had, (laughs) The actual fans who were so angry at the jam band that, like, literally, no, just, no one was clapping. You just brought back <laughs> such like, a, a memory for me. I was at Bottom of the Hill one time. I think it was with James, and we were like one of you know. There's ten people in a 300 size club, and this band was it was one of the loudest bands I've ever heard play. And I partly because there weren't enough human bodies to absorb the sound. And I was stoned (laughs) off my gourd. And I remember, but we were standing up front and everything. We were like paying attention. I was into the music. And the bass player called me out from stage for not clapping. So I was just standing there (laughs) staring at him like stonedly. I think they were pissed that there was no one there. But look, I think the bass players just, they're just edgy. You know, they're, they're like, (laughs) just looking for something. They've already been relegated to bass. <laughs> yeah, right. They've already failed at guitar. Now. <laughs> All right, let's roll it on here. This is the last track on the album, the last track on our focus list. This song is called Stare at Cold. Does the, what what does this sentiment mean? Can someone explain that to me? I have no clue. Staring at cold, dude. I stare at cold all the time, man. When I'm on a bus. I'm staring at cold. When I'm making omelets, I'm staring at cold. I have no idea what the hell this song means. Why close the album with this? I, I don't. That's what I don't understand. Well, I so I like that they ended the album on this because of the gospel double time at the very end. It almost feels like you're walking out of church in the South. An all-out party. I at least appreciated that. There is no information on what stare at cold means. It's just info on the black crows. It's like, maybe it was too hip for everyone to, to get behind. I just feel like this was another one that they should have tightened up. I I hear what you're saying about the very end, but halfway through the song, it basically restarts. Like they stop and then restart the song. And like a two act play, the second act should be shorter. That's a good, 
That's a good songwriting tip there, Rob. Thank you. Again, so, so kids, if you're listening, don't cover Dock of the Bay. And if you're going to stop and restart your song, make the second half shorter. I have shorter. a long list of uncoverable songs, by the way. Maybe that's a, maybe you can Ooh. collaborate on that. But we need a playlist. A public playlist for this. Right, write in and let us know your thoughts. There was a cool rhythm thing they did at the end, the drummer did, that I still can't figure out, where like they swapped the kick and the snare, or there's something going on. Yeah, it was just a, it was a cool, a little cool little flavor thing that I, I still haven't been able to figure out, but they all wind up landing on one at some point. So well, well done, Steve Gorman. I thought the drums on the album in general were were executed well and recorded well and mixed well. Like I have no complaints with the drums at all. Like I think that those shined through, in my opinion. We're finished our focus list. Now we're going to throw things around the room to get those votes on whether or not you actually need to hear this album. We're going to throw it over to Alan. It's going to be a no for me. And it it goes against slightly some of my criteria that I've been consistent about, which is if there are, if there's an album with really good songs, which I do think she talks to angels, which we didn't talk about much. It is a really good song. And I, and I tend to think that the idea is you're listening in a vacuum and, and you haven't already heard some of these songs. And so I do think you should hear that song, but there's just not enough here for me to feel like it's a must listen, you know, for, for all the shit that I, I kind of talked about it. I, I do think it was, it was kind of fun to Rob's point. I, I just didn't feel like there was anything different enough that you have to carve out an hour of your life and you have to listen to this. So I, I'm going to say no. All right, Phil. So I'm going to go the opposite direction and I'm going to give it a yes this week. I mean, there's definitely like some nostalgia in this for me. So, you know, I, I definitely come in bias, but I think in a different way, I think as far as just nineties rock records go, you know, I think this is an interesting counterpart to Guns N' Roses, although very different. I think it is a precursor to Lenny Kravitz, but it's also not the grunge thing that will come later. And also, I think it's probably better than a lot of the Rolling Stones records that were coming out, you know, after, you know, I don't want to put a date on it because those Stones records are really good until they're not, right? But I'm sure we could draw a line in the sand there. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to give this a yes. All right, Rob. Man, I've been really conflicted about it, but I'm going to ultimately go no. It's a bit of a squeaker for me. It just doesn't quite make the threshold. I enjoyed it. It was fun, and I would put it on again in the context that Alan described at a backyard barbecue with other red-blooded Americans. That sounds fun <laughs> to me. However, what I'm most concerned about in this list of must-hears is, you know, how it fits into the musical canon, what it really, what kind of musical movements it kicks off, who it influences. To me, that is more important than just a fun record. So although I liked it, I don't think it's necessary. All right. That's a no from Rob. All right. This is Adam. And I specifically remember when I was 11 or 12, I think I usurped this album from my sister, who was a bit older than me and, and had enough money for the Columbia House subscription. So I remember she had Stick It To You from Slaughter, Martika, which if you remember her, it was Toy Soldiers was the big song, uh, Debbie Gibson, New Kids on the Block, and then Shake Your Moneymaker. And this album stood out amongst all of those. 
as what my dad would ultimately call like this is rock and roll <laughs> compared to those 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 paragons of rock music. <laughs> huh? I haven't heard. First of all, I haven't heard the name Slaughter in reference to the band <laughs> in like thirty years. <laughs> So I remember this album and 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 just being blown away as, as a kid because I think this might have been one of like the first modern hard rock albums or or just or southern rock albums that I had heard. I grew up listening to seventies rock, but this was the first one that I felt like I owned. It was of my generation. Granted, I was you know ten, eleven, twelve when I first heard it, but I do think that this was a classic album from the nineties that you do need to hear. So. Probably no big surprise, but it's going to be a yes from me. And if I recall, it's going to be tied to the runner. So we're going to say that Shake Your Moneymaker from the Black Crows is on the list despite some objections. So congrats, boys. There's only two of you left in the band. Everything fell apart over the last 32 <laughs> years, but uh, I'll keep listening to the discography as well. And work is great, by the way, Rob. So if, if, cool. if you're looking All for right. a little more. I'll check it out. All right, so uh, let's dive into the listener mailbag. We're going to throw things over to Rob. Hey, thanks so much, Adam. We've been getting a lot of mail lately. I think we might have ticked off a few people, but in any case, I have some some mail oh, oh God. to read here. Buckle up. The formula is working. <laughs> no, no, these aren't these aren't too bad, actually. But the first one comes from Lucille from the UK, yet another female, presumably. I found your show through the deloused episode. She's referring to the ah. Mars Volta episode. Only after realizing I was a fan of Mars Volta quite literally the day before. And it was a lot like listening to my own opinions on the record at the same time as as you guys were voicing. <laughs> the format of the podcast and the casual but opinionated tone was something I've really been missing in terms of music discussion. So by all means, thanks a ton for doing it. Also love Sparks. I'm a huge Sparks fan. Drive like Jehu. Oh, in the air episodes as well. Wow, interesting. A Jehu okay. fan, nice. And and they stuck with us. And they stuck, <laughs> yeah, right. with us. I actually think I think I, we ended up saying we like Jehu though. It kind of grew on us, right? I didn't say that. <laughs> Duly noted. Okay, we have one more, a quick one from Roger, who doesn't tell us where he's writing from, but he does does mention he's a German expat. So I assume that means that he's a German living away from Germany. He says. Love the chemistry between you guys. You crush most other music podcasts in terms of musical knowledge and theory. The Nana Cherry episode is probably one of the funniest things I've heard in my life. (laughs) Keep up the good work. I might go back and listen to that just for, you know, just for grins. I am extremely proud of that episode. I thought it was... (laughs) So I agree with our listener. Thank you. Yeah, she was exceptionally terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thank you. Thank you for writing in. And we just want to encourage you, if you have anything to say about any of the opinions we've expressed here, I know there are a lot of big Black Crows fans out there. Feel free to yell at us or post us to a Black Crows forum or shoot us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at Gmail. We'll take everything you write into our hearts and maybe even read it on air. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. And buckle up, Rob. I've got another way for folks to get in touch with us. So new this week, we're trying something different. It's pretty cool. It's pretty easy. If you're too lazy to email, I get it. And Lord knows I would be. So you can now point your browser or your phone to sayhi.chat slash 1001. If you can't remember that, just go to the episode notes on this episode. We'll have a link 
what, what you'll do is it'll bring you up to a quick audio recorder. You can record a message and send it to us. We'll either play it on the air or just read the transcription on the air for you. Again, if you're too lazy to email, I get it. I would be as well. All right. So next up, we are going to actually, we're not going to spin the Albinator. If I recall, Rob, keep, keep me right here. Next week is our 100th episode. That is correct, Adam. We have we've made it. I hope we do slaughter. <laughs> Ninety nine in the bag, coming up on one hundred. That is amazing, and we are going to be reviewing Led Zeppelin two, which, if mm. you recall, our premiere episode, our debut episode, was Led Zeppelin one. So we're rounding things out. Every hundred episodes, we're going to do a Zeppelin album. So we hope you stick around for the next five to eight years. Well, and then and, to, uh, once we finally complete the list, then we'll do a Greta Van Fleet album just to like close <laughs> close the loop. I love I love taking it back to the beginning, and I love part of that part of the homework here will not just be listening to Led Zeppelin too, we'll be listening to our own baby voices. From oh God, so long ago, two years, just about two oh years God. ago. Yeah. Wow, man. Well, that is very exciting. All right, folks, you have your homework along with us. It is Led Zeppelin two. We'll be bringing our hot takes and I'm sure some love as well. So that's going to do it for us here today at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. I'm Phil. And I'm Rob. Boosh. Boom a dip dip, boom a dip dip.